At this time, I normally say get the, the outlines out of the bulletin and uh, we'll use those as we go through the sermon. But this morning, there's not one. Uh, I would encourage you, though, to get your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning. And in just a second, we're going to pray. But I think it's really important that uh, before we pray, we, we remember, all of us remember that... Uh, uh, you know, the weather has not uh, has not been fortuitous for a lot of folk. Um, lots of our, our kiddos are, are traveling today, going back to college or going back home after being here in San Antonio. And a lot of them are on the highway. A lot of them are going to be facing some pretty adverse weather. At the same time, we have uh, uh, folks up in, in the Garland area, right there in the, the Metroplex, that were heavily affected, some of them even to the loss of their lives last night when the tornadoes touched down. And we want to ask uh, God to, to, to bless and to help and to strengthen and to fortify and to raise up people that will help those folks um, in the Metroplex that, are, that are, are struggling with the aftermath of these tornadoes, as well as, remember, all of our children that are on the roads. Are you with me on that? Let's bow our heads and join our hearts. Father, we, we're, we're grateful that, that we have this place to come to this morning and to ask You in the name of Jesus for blessing. And the first blessing, Father, is that You will reveal Yourself to us in such a way that we are humbled and, and made modest in all of our attitudes and in, in all of our ways, Father, before You to place all of our affections upon You. For You are mighty and great. Your unfailing love not only is eternal, but it never ceases. It never ceases to amaze us when we think of the profoundness and the significance of that love for us. And so thank You, Father. But we also ask for the blessing, Father, that as we study Your Word this morning, that You will open our eyes and our ears so that we can discern it. Please, Father, give us eyes to see and the ears to hear Your Word. And we also ask, Father, for You to bless those uh, that we love very dearly. Some of them are our children. Some of them are our fathers and our mothers, our brothers and our sisters, and extended family, our friends that are traveling through, it seems like, uh, the, the eye of a hurricane today. And we ask You to, to, uh, to guard them and to send Your angels to surround them, Father, as they travel. And we also ask, Father, as, as, as we, we always do when we hear of people that have found themselves in, in a valley and have found themselves in trouble, that You raise up people, Father, to, 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 to be merciful to them and to be kind to them and to strengthen them and to help and we pray this for all of those that were affected in the Metroplex through the tornadoes yesterday. And we ask, Father, that You will bless these people and make them keenly aware of Your presence in their life. And so to this end, Father, we, we ask in total faith that You will do it in the name of Your Son, Jesus. We pray also in total faith that Your will be done in our life, Father, all the time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. I grew up in a, in a family, and I've talked about this before, I grew up in a family that we, we were just sort of junkies for, for Christmas music. And, and we were very eclectic. I mean, we, we had uh, this 
uh, fabulous choral music we had. You know, we would listen to uh, Handel's Messiah. And we'd listen, you know, from that spectrum all the way to, you know, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. And we loved it all. Yeah. And we were the same way with the movies. We, we loved the Christmas music, uh, movies and the Christmas music. And we, we have, every, I think everybody has their favorite Christmas, their cr- Christmas movie. Well, Ellen and I, uh, we, we really like White Christmas, the old Danny Kaye, um, Bing Crosby movie. And there's just something about it. it just, uh, it's, it's a beautiful movie, and we wanted to see it, had not seen it. So a couple of weeks ago, had our chance while we were doing some babysitting, uh, put the kids to bed, started watching the movie. And about halfway through the movie, I said something along the line of, can you people at least have a conversation for five minutes without singing? And Ellen goes, you realize it's a musical, right? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, uh, some movies are not so realistic when it, comes to, when it comes to real life, when it comes to true life. And then there are those that I think, even though they may be comedic, they are very realistic and they're very honest. I think one of the most honest, even though it's a comedy, is this movie up on the screen. Christmas Vacation. How many of you like Christmas Vacation? It's a... It's okay to raise your hand and like a, a, a movie in church. <laughs> Again, some of the movies are not very realistic. Some of them are very realistic. I think this is one of the more honest ones. Very funny movie and one of the most truthful scenes and honest scenes and realistic scenes and funny scenes in the entire movie is the dinner scene. I love this scene. The scene around the table is just chaos and Clark, who is... Um, uh, they're carving this uh, this turkey that just exploded. It was so it was cooked so long, it was so dry that when he finally cuts the skin, it blows up. Clark just wants a little piece at Christmas, but he doesn't experience any of it because of the people around the table, the family, and especially because of this guy. What's his name? Cousin Eddie. Everybody knows Cousin Eddie. Well, the movie ends, as you know, on a high point. And shows the importance of a family. All of that is underscored and all of that is underlined. And it ends on a really high and, and, uh, and significant point. But the movie, I think, is a comedic snapshot of a much more serious world that we live in. A world that we live in, the world at large, but the world that we live in where there are people. And the Bible has some descriptors. The Bible, I think, is one of the most realistic books, most honest, the most honest book about life in this world that has ever been written. And the Bible has some descriptors to tell the story of the world. And you know these well. The first one is thorns and thistles. The world was created without any strife whatsoever. There was nothing bad that was going on in the world. Uh, I mentioned um, not too long ago, when, when these young couples come in and, and we talk about uh, we talk about what it's like to be married in those first couple of years of marriage in particular. We talk about the, the fact that at some point they're going to begin to experience some anxiety because when you try to bring two people together from different genders and different educational backgrounds with different painful experiences and different growing up experiences and different expectations, whenever you try to bring those two people together, it's like a transmission. When you try to bring them together for them to become one flesh, it's like a transmission that doesn't quite mesh. And so that stripping of the gears sometimes feels kind of like anxiety. And all of us, if we're a human being, we've experienced anxiety at one level or another, probably multiple times throughout our life. And probably at the low grade anxiety, there are some of us that experience some of that every day. 
Just imagine, though, the world when it was created in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that there was no such thing as anxiety. That's why anxiety is so, is so uh, debilitating to the human body and to the human spirit and mind and soul is because we were not created for anxiety. When the world was created and we were created, there was no such thing as anxiety. Everything was fine. There, there were no thorns and thistles. There was not any anxiety uh, because there was no death. There was no hunger. There was no hate. And then the crime. Not just the crime of the day or the crime of the century or the crime, but the crime of all time. The crime against the universe, in the universe, against God of all time. And that's when human beings decided that their Creator was not worth trusting and He wasn't worth trusting because anxiety had somehow been formed in their mind that God does not have their best interest at heart. And so they ate of the forbidden fruit and the sin that enters into the world because we did not trust God, because we did not believe that God had our best interests at heart, that anxiety, that sin, that, that, uh, uh, that, that sense of guilt, that sense of, of things not being the way that they were created to be, that sense of anxiety became so palpable that it became like thorns and thistles. That it became like thorns and thistles. And God uses this metaphor of thorns and thistles to describe the world. And it ushers in a world of, and this is the second word, violence. This, this becomes the story of mankind. Cain kills Abel. And then not just a couple of chapters later, Lamech brags to his wives that he killed a young man for wounding him. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God says to Noah that the end of all flesh has come before me. Meaning that, uh, that a, t a time of, of incredible violence and, and what humanity is capable of doing and, and the fact that humanity has taken such a turn that the end is, is visible to God Himself. He says the earth is filled with what? Violence. Because of them. The end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence violence because of men. And you know the rest of the, that story. The world is destroyed and repopulated by one righteous family, but the curse of fallenness is too great. And nations begin to divide and they begin to fight with one another. People begin to be enslaved. The world goes, even when we bring it up to our modern age, where because of education and prosperity and things like that and, and, and knowing the past, knowing history, you know, we say sometimes, I think very naively, that if we, if we don't study history, we don't know history. We're bound to repeat it. When we begin to understand the degree, the, the, the depth, the profoundness of what it is to be fallen, I don't, I don't care how many PhDs you have in history, because of the fallen nature of man, we are bound to repeat it. And even into our modern age, we have gotten to this place where even the entire world can go to war against itself. And not just once, but twice. And even when you have a, a great war to end all great wars, it's about 21 years later that you have another even worse war. And then you have all of these conflicts that begin to, to flare up. I mean, when you think about throughout the, all of recorded history, the amount of time when there has been peace on the planet, it amounts, to, it, it amounts to, to, to basically a few years in the history of the world. And up to our present day, we have terrorism. It's just taken a different kind of a face. 
But in the middle of this is a promise. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. And say it with me. Prince of Peace. Let's say it again. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And what, what this promise is about is about the One who will come and where there has been anxiety and thorns and thistles and violence, this One will bring peace. And it begins with us becoming peace receivers. That's the experience of peace that this, this Prince of Peace will bring to us. Peace receivers. Now, when we think of this peace, we think of beauty pageants, right? What is, they ask the beauty uh, queen, you know, what is it that you wish more than anything else in the world? Well, you know, I wish for what? World peace. We think of this global realization of peace that we will realize in our lifetime world peace. Yet, lots of violence still in the world. In fact, just as, as an aside here, when, when we speak to our, our Jewish friends about the Messiah, one of the reasons that they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah is because, okay, what are the prophecies about the Messiah? Well, one of them is He will be a Prince of Peace. Well, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, how come the world does not experience peace? So if it's not the global kind of peace, what kind of peace is it that we are to receive? Well, sometimes we think it's that emotional kind, the visceral kind, that there's some kind of a, of a peace that, that comes over us. And I think that's part of it. Don't get me wrong. I think there is a sense in which we experience that kind of emotional peace as we become disciples of Jesus and grow in the profoundness of that discipleship as we live out each day trying to live our lives as Christ does and to be conformed to His image and to think like He does and to desire the things that He does and all of this. There is a sense in which we experience that peace that passes understanding. But I think that the Bible speaks of an even more profound peace that this Prince of Peace brings to every human being who is willing to receive it. And that's peace with God. And quite frankly, it's hard to think of a, of a, of a, of a substantial kind of peace. Of a, of, a, of, a, of a kind of peace that becomes foundational to our life that can exist without having peace with God our Creator. Because where did the unpeace come from in the first place? When that relationship was disrupted, when that relationship was blown up, because we did not want to trust our Creator. We didn't want to trust God. We didn't believe that God had our best interests at stake at heart, and so we were going to go our own way. And because we disrupted and tore up that relationship through lack of faith and lack of trust and lack of, 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 of obedience and loyalty, to all of the greatness of His love that He had shown us up to that point. I mean, we're standing and basically listening to words and observing God in the garden and the garden itself, and we choose to go this direction. That's why the peace blew up. But then there's a peace, a Prince of Peace, who brings a peace with God. And we become the peace receivers again because that, re that relationship with God has been put back together through the one man, Jesus. And so we read in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Just li listen to these words. Having been justified by faith. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, having, having been uh, de declared 
righteous in a way that we go back into a relationship with God, but it's not just because God has thrown everything away that was ever a standard or ever a, 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 a desire on His part in His relationship with humans, but having been justified, that is put in a place of innocence and relationship with God again by faith, that is all of a sudden through our faith that was that the lack of faith caused the disruption with the relationship with God in the first place. With that faith in Christ Jesus, having justified us, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness, that is, all of the deity, all of God to dwell in Jesus and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made what? Peace through the blood of His cross. Lots of reasons why Jesus came in the flesh. One was to reveal God perfectly. But you know one of the reasons Christ took on a body? So we can have peace with God. Took on a body. So one of the reasons that the Christ became flesh, that God the Son became flesh, the incarnation born of Mary in Bethlehem. One of the reasons that that happened in history was so that we could have peace. And having made peace with God, or God having made peace with us through the body of Christ, His good pleasure, His love that made it happen, we can experience peace. And because we have that experience of peace, we're not only peace receivers and take, 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 but we're also peacemakers. The full effects of of the peace with God impacts you in such a way that you become a person of peacemaking. Have you have you ever have you, have you ever had an experience in life? That, that was, was so visceral, it was, it was it's such a, a profound experience that it changed you profoundly and, and really kind of forever. I, mean, I, I remember the day that, uh, that racism took, took, a, took a dagger into the heart in my life. In, I was in middle school at the time in, in the Washington, D.C. area. This little, you know, punk, short, white kid. And I was looking at a display of some art when a couple of, of African-American students who were upperclassmen came and stood beside me. One pushed me into the other, pushed me into the other. And the next thing you know, they're accusing me of, of doing something. And, and I know at that point that I'm, I'm about to get pretty beat up when all of a sudden I felt an arm around my neck and it was one of my African-American friends by the name of Walter who was crippled in both feet, who pulled me away from those two guys and said, leave him alone, he's cool, he's cool, he's cool. And there was something about that moment that just completely changed me in, in terms of, of what, it, what skin color really meant. You know, when you experience something like that, it just changes you. It changes the way you think about people. And then you ratchet that up, and here you are guilty of all of this crime against the greatness of God's holiness, who has done nothing but but pour love and blessing out upon you. And then you realize that the the reason that you have a relationship with Him and all of His blessing being poured into your heart through the Spirit is because Christ 
in God's good wishes, in God's great love, took on a body and took on our sin in order for us to have peace with God. And it just sort of, in, in that experience that I had with Walter, it made me, in, in a sense, and, and I, don't, I don't claim to be perfect in anything, but there was a way in which I became uh, a, a, a defender where, where racism and certain words that would describe different ethnic groups became really odious to me because of that experience. And I wanted to champion more the, the, the relationships of friendship and of love, especially inside of the church. And in the same way, when we experience the fact that we deserve what it is that we get, because even as hard as we try, there are times when we just we hurt people beyond belief. The profoundness of our capabilities of inflicting harm on another human being is profound, profound, profound. Sometimes we don't even mean it, but we still hurt somebody. And then sometimes we really do mean it. I mean, how long, husbands, did you have to go out with your wives before you realized what buttons to push to just really devastate them emotionally? And, and wives, you know, when you were dating your husband, your spouse, how long did you really have to know them before you figured out what buttons to push to really devastate them with words? Or the lack of words. Punish somebody with silence or to, to, to accentuate a part of them that they don't. I mean, we understand our capabilities of inflicting thorns and thistles on other human beings is incredibly deep. And once we realize that and know that Jesus took all of the thorns and the thistles upon uh, my thorns and your thorns and thistles upon himself in order for us to have peace with him, it changes us. And that's why. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right there at the very beginning, when He's talking about this is what it means to be a disciple. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? The sons of God. Now, He talks about, you know, blessed are these kinds of people all over the place, the Beatitudes and at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5. But in this one, He says, sons of God. Sons of God, to be said that you were the son of somebody meant that you're following in your father's footsteps, that you're doing, that when people see you, they see something about the father. You know, Jesus was the son of a carpenter and everybody knew that, you know, that, that Jesus had some skills with wood. He says here that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Do you want somebody to be able to see that the presence of God in your life then be a peacemaker? Because that's what God did with the entire world when he gave his son Jesus in love for our sins, in order whoever believed in Him should have eternal life. A couple of verses later, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you, and He says it again, may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that as God broke down the walls for our reconciliation to be possible, so we break down the walls in order to reconcile with other people around us. That's how San Antonio begins to experience the kingdom of God. Is when they come in contact with a community of people who call Christ Lord and recognize God as their Creator. And who have embraced the gospel that saves them. And walls begin to be broken down among people. 
We break down the walls between people. Our King invites us to be part of creating a kingdom that is very different from the one that we live in. You know, the last couple of months have not been great ones for people living in certain parts of the world. Think about Paris, France. Think just a couple of weeks ago to San Bernardino, California. A little over a year ago, it was actually August of last year, we were watching all of these events unfold in Ferguson, Missouri, with you know the shooting uh, of, a, of a young black man by the name of, of Michael Brown. The protests were taking place all over the place. There was one in Portland. And you know, it, you know, it would be very possible for us to, to dismiss what was happening in Ferguson. And, and just and, and say that those the, the underlying uh, sentiments and unrest in, in that community and in our nation as it involves race doesn't shouldn't exist. But the the bottom line is that police come out and in Portland crowds were becoming unruly. And out in the middle of that protest was this twelve year old boy by the name of Devante Hart and he's holding a sign. Little black kid says free hugs and he's crying. And the police officer, who's a white man, walks over to him and asks if he's okay. And Devante says that, that he's worried about black kids his age. The police officer says, I know, I know. And he says, Hey, could, could I have one of those? And this is the picture that we all saw. I think Jesus would call that the way we break down walls. And I can't help but think that that's what the Prince of Peace who enters into our heart, who has broken down all of the walls of violence, and of prejudice and of bias and everything else that fallenness and sin creates, has broken through those walls for us to have peace with God. And that when we go through those walls that are created between men and between women and between the races and between socioeconomic groups and demographics and nations and these kinds of things, that people begin to see what the Prince of Peace is all about. But it begins, it begins peace with God. The peace of God coming into your heart. The peace of God that is established eternally through faith in what Jesus accomplished for you. And that can happen for you this morning if it's never happened before. That you can experience a peace with God that transcends everything. A peace where you know that sins have been forgiven. That, that, that guilt that guilt is being wiped away. That transgressions, that, that, that iniquity, all of the biblical words, all of that has been wiped away. That God puts it behind His back. He plummets it into the bottom of the sea. He puts it in a place where He can see it no longer. That it has been wiped clean. That it is far from Him as the east is from the west. All of that happens because of Christ. But you have to accept that gift. There comes a point where you make the decision in your life that my, the direction of my life is, not, is going to be different. At, 
as long as I have my hands on the steering wheel and the management of the affairs of my own life, it's going to crash into a wall. But as long as I, as long as I do that, that's going to be the result I get. But when I take my hands off and allow God, the Christ, to be Lord and to drive my life in the right direction, and I come to my senses through repentance and recognize that it's my fallenness, my sin, that has created all of this. But that through love, those sins have been put on Christ. And through faith, expressed in my baptism, that, that I'm changing my life, that I'm being born again, that my sins are being washed away, that I'm committing my life, not just to the forgiveness of sin, but to the Lordship of Christ Himself. And God puts His Spirit inside of me. Then I begin to experience the profound change that is called discipleship, that is called a new birth, that is called, is called being a Christian. And if that describes you this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about these desires in your life as we stand and praise God together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine.